This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, this is Megan Rapino, and I'm Sue Bird. We've decided to turn our crazy IG live show into a podcast for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. A Touch More. New episodes of A Touch More drop Tuesday only on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Sacramento. Three on one. Bagley the step. Bagley with the duck. And you can put it in the book and send it to the left. There it is. Buddy Hill alone at the top. Of the Kings record book. Oh, I like to see Fox Force 5 in the open court. Fox into the lane. Oh, if you don't like that, you don't like Kings basketball. Welcome back to another episode of the King's Pulse Podcast. My name is Brendan Nunez. We don't have Rich Ivanowski on here today, but we have another big guest to go with this series of getting to know the voices and names that are heard so often among the Sacramento Kings fan base. And we have a guest today that everyone is going to know well just from his voice. We have Gary Garrett on here today. How are you doing, Gary? Well, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, Brendan. I appreciate your interest in trying to hook up. I'm, I'm a novice at this whole Zoom business. <laughs> I think this is only the second time that, that I've done something like this. So I'm kind of learning an old horse, you know, still going to the post and uh, see if we can uh, stumble our way through this without too many complications. Yeah, it seems to be going well. Your video's great and uh, can hear you amazingly with that trademark voice. And I always like to start at the top here, Gary, is just what got you into sports in the first place? Um, my understanding is that you grew up in Michigan. Uh, were there teams that you were following a lot growing up? And what got you into sports in the first place? Not so much that I followed a lot of different teams. Uh, I was an only child. My father died when I was 12 years old. He had cancer for seven years. And um, my mother was frequently ill, and I, I lived with our minister's family and with various neighbors from time to time over sometimes extended periods. Uh, the bottom line being that at a relatively young age, I kind of learned how to fend for myself. And uh, my, this small town in, in Michigan, uh, Midland, Michigan, the local radio station was about a mile from my home. And after my father passed, um, I was... 13 at the time, and I started, you know, literally hanging out every day at the local radio station. I would go there every evening after I after school, after I had um, had a paper route for seven years and delivered a lot of daily newspapers. And mm-hmm. I would go at the radio station, and just uh, the guys there were so kind and supportive. And I, I, consequently, by just hanging out there over a period of time, they gave me a, a show as a teenager on a weekly basis. And I learned, you know, a good deal about small town radio at a pretty young age. Yeah, definitely. I mean, having your own show at a small age is, is no uh, small feat for sure. And, and then what brought you to 
eventually, I mean, did you know that broadcasting, you got into it pretty early, but did you have an idea at that point, okay, this is something I want to do long-term? As young as I can remember, um, I always wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And this is at a time, keeping in mind that, you know, I'm 100 years old. So this is this goes back to the Stone Ages. And at that time, uh, there weren't, there wasn't broadcast curriculum in the colleges and universities. There were only a handful of universities in the entire country that uh, mm-hmm. catered to broadcaster, uh, would-be broadcasters. Whereas today, you know, virtually every high school, every junior college, every college university has got some kind of a, uh, their own station or a broadcast curriculum. So I was able, as I said, to get a, you know, a nice knowledge at a, at a fairly young age. But I, as you got in more and more involved, and I went to um, college in Indiana, a small school named Anderson, Anderson University. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have much in the way of you know, broadcast. And so I basically went there the first couple of years thinking I'd do the basics, and then I would probably transfer to a, a Northwestern or one of those universities that had uh, broadcast programming. Right. And as I found out, I liked the small environment and the small campus. And, and uh, because I was able to work full-time at my local hometown radio station during the summers, um, it fulfilled the need. And I, I really got good practical hands-on knowledge. And of course, in small-town radio, you do a little bit of everything. You know, you do, you do music, you do sports, you do news, right. uh, all of those different things. And it was a great training ground, as it, as it turned out. Mm-hmm. And eventually, obviously, you worked your way to basketball, but was that a sport that initially stuck out to you? Or like I talked to Grant Napier recently, and he said his goal really was uh, the NHL at first. And there's a lot of guys in broadcasting I've heard that maybe would have preferred to go into a different sport, but then stumbled onto a different opportunity. Was basketball something that stood out to you when you were younger, or did you kind of work your way into that? I loved basketball as, as a kid. Uh, played with teams, you know, as youngsters do uh, in these bitty leagues. And uh, in, in my hometown, there was an industrial league. Uh, Dow Chemical Company was the, is, and remains the primary industry in Midland, Michigan. And they had an athletic club that had teams that competed throughout the Midwest with some pretty notable uh, uh, other teams and organizations. And my father and mother were basketball fans. And as a child, they took me to those games on a regular basis. And I, I just absolutely love basketball. And I mentioned the paper route. And, and the Michigan winters can be kind of nasty. These were afternoons uh, after school delivering papers, and with the exception of Sunday, Sunday morning. And, you know, you're getting out there at 4.30 in the morning to pick up a bundle of papers. And sometimes it's snowing and the wind's blowing and it's icy and cold and just totally miserable. Right. And there were stretches on my paper route where there were long distances between some of the homes and I would manufacture in my mind, I would call basketball games as a teenager in my head uh, because I, I just, as I said, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster and basketball was something that I love. And so I guess from that standpoint, there was kind of a natural transition of course, at that time, never, ever having the inkling that I would have the opportunity to call any kind of basketball, be it high school, uh, college, university, uh, let alone the NBA. Yeah. 
Yeah, wow. And there's a story I heard you tell on James Ham's podcast that I'm going to ask you to repeat a little bit here for anyone that might have not listened. Um, and definitely anyone go check that one out for a little bit of your background as well. Of I, I believe it was a football game that someone ended up leaving the broadcast at halftime and you stepped in. Can you kind of reshare this story? Yeah, I, mean, I graduated from college. My wife and I were back in our hometown. I was working full time at that at the radio station, and um, we had gotten back there in the fall. We were just into the the high school football season, and high school football in Michigan at that time was a very big deal. And the high school that I attended, we had a state t- state championship team, and so I was happy to be involved in just on a Friday night going to and observing, sitting in the in the booth with the sports director of the radio station and the engineer who happened to be the program director for the radio station. And for whatever reason, at halftime of that game, uh, the sports director walked out. I don't know if he went out to get a smoke, have a smoke, take a drink a beer, whatever. I don't, I don't have a clue, but the bottom line was he never came back and we're getting close to starting the, the second half and the program director slash engineer he turns to me and kind of shrugs his shoulders and he says, I guess you'll be doing the second half. And so no preparation, uh, strictly, you know, a little handout program uh, folded in the middle that had numbers and names. And so that was my guide for the second half. And then out of that, you know, the sports director then loses his job as a result of his failure to appear yeah. in point of duties in the second half. And uh, from that point on, I did the rest of the season uh, for, for my uh, the high school where I had graduated in my hometown. So it was kind of interesting the way that way that all played out. Yeah, definitely. Wor- world works in mysterious ways. And you say you weren't prepped, but I, I mean, maybe not that game specifically, but you had prep in the field for sure that had you ready for that one. And and then what brought you to Sacramento? Because, I mean, you were in Sacramento before the team got there, right? Yeah, we moved to Sacramento, uh, you know, again, this goes back a lot of years. <laughs> we came to uh, California from Michigan uh, in 1963. I worked at KHSL Radio in Chico, 100 miles north of Sacramento. And uh, that was kind of an interesting story as well and how we got there because uh, we were finishing up the high school basketball season in Michigan, and I was calling the games for middle and high school and um, got a phone call one day out of the blue uh, my father-in-law, who was a minister in Chico, was in the local radio station. Uh, he recorded uh, lead-ins and lead-outs to some religious programming that they aired on Sundays in order to maintain the requirements for the uh, FCC, Federal Communications uh, License, for that radio station. And he happened to be coming out of a recording booth, and uh, the program director came storming out of his office. He was a fiery little Lebanese guy. His name was Don Baroda. And uh, he said, Preacher, I just had to fire so-and-so. What am I going to do? And my father-in-law, who was a rather large, stoic man, said, Well, I have a son-in-law in Michigan who's involved in radio. Preacher, get him on the phone right now. And two weeks later, wow. Marlene and our then-infant daughter, Beth, uh, were loaded up in a car and driving cross-country to new, a new world in Chico, California. So we spent two years in, in Chico, and uh, another one of those interesting happenings, a phone call out of the blue, 
And a fellow who I did not know identified himself and said he had worked at KHSL. He was working in Sacramento. He knew that there was an opening for uh, sports uh, at Channel 3, KCRA Television. And I had just started in the previous year doing some, uh, my introduction to TV at KHSL Television, sister station to the radio station. Uh, they started local news for the first time, and they came to me and wanted to know if I would do the sports. Well, I knew absolutely nothing about television. Yeah. And so what ended up was I said, well, of course, because I knew I was going to get an extra, and I don't remember if it was $5 or $10 each night. And I got five minutes. I'd sit in the studio in front of a television studio camera and kind of started learning a little bit about the television business by simply doing a radio sportscast in front of a camera. So okay. that's how that evolved, and then that led us to coming to Sacramento. Uh, I called, and, and they invited me to come down and spend a day at Channel 3 and talk with the news director and some of the other folks and did an audition, and, and they hired me, and a couple of weeks later, we were moving to Sacramento, and that was in 1965. That was 20 years before the Kings came around. Yeah. And then, Fast forwarding, I mean, and I'm stringing together stories here. I, Brendan, I, I hope that's all right. But No, they're great. Feel free. It is kind of fascinating the way this all unfolds because after 20 years in Sacramento, phone rings one day, again, totally unexpected, a fellow by the name of Gregory Dutch Van Dusen, who was basically the general manager of the Kansas City Kings, who was from Sacramento. He, huh. Me and, and we had you know, we played media softball and one thing or another together, and he was aware of, of you know my years working at Channel Three in Sacramento, and he said, uh, "Gary, uh, I want to play What If with you." And I said, well, "Okay." And I have no idea where this is coming from or where it's going. Yeah. He says, "What if the Kansas City Kings were to move to Sacramento? Would you be interested in being the radio play-by-play voice of the Kings?" Yeah. And. I'm stunned. And I said, well, of course. Right. <laughs> I might have to have a little bit of latitude because at that time I was doing independent work for NBC uh, television and traveling around the country with various assignments, primarily in motorsports. And he said, that wouldn't be a problem. And a few weeks go by and then another phone call, totally unexpected. The general manager of KFDK Radio who had the, the rights for the Kings when they did come to Sacramento for the first, I think it was nine years. And um, the general manager called and said, Gary, I'm going to Kansas City in a couple of days. I'm going to see the Kings play. I'm going to meet some of the people in the organization. Would you like to go with me? So, sure. So we went to Kansas City. We saw the Kings play. Uh, met the general manager, Joe Axelson, his assistant, uh, GM, Bob Whitsitt, uh, Julie Fai, who is the director of media relations, uh, Kevin Harlan was doing the radio call for the Kings that particular season in Kansas uh-huh. City. And uh, so we come back to Sacramento. Another couple of weeks goes by and another one of those phone calls. Gary, the Kings are coming west for their final trip of the season. They're going to be playing uh, against the Lakers in L.A. and against the Warriors in Oakland. I'd like you to go and record those two games so that we can, you know, get a feel for your broadcast style. Yeah. Recruited my teenage son, Bob. Uh, we went to L.A. and uh, met Bill Jones, who is the, the travel coordinator, the athletic trainer for the Kings in those years. We were staying, uh, the Kings were staying at the airport Marriott in L.A. And um, Bill Jones, Jonesy says, uh, need you and, and Bob to come down and join us. We'll be on a hotel shuttle at such and such a time going to the Forum. 
we get on the shuttle, and there's, of course, you know, Reggie Theus and Eddie Johnson and Larry Jew and Thorpe and all the different members of right. the Sacramento Kings, and you could just sense they're looking at Bob and I like, all right, who the heck are these guys, and what are they doing here on our shuttle going to a game? Right. Jonesy basically introduced us and said, these guys are okay. They're going to join us for this game and also in Oakland. They were welcoming. They were supportive. Um, we were way up in the nosebleeds at the Great Western Forum. And uh, Bobby is my other set of eyes. And so we call the game into a recorder. We go to Oakland, do the same thing with the Warriors, not knowing that later on, Joe Axelson, the general manager, when the Kings, in fact, were approved to move to Sacramento and they were in the process of relocating, he listened to those tapes driving cross-country from Kansas City to Sacramento. And he wow. had the final stamp of approval on my becoming the broadcaster for the Kings. And basically what Van Dusen and company wanted, they wanted somebody with a Sacramento identity uh, to step into that particular role. They had to open it up uh, to other applicants. And I later found out that there were right around, I guess, 100 applicants, I was told, including wow. some then broadcasters in the NBA who wanted to relocate to California. Uh, but they wanted the local tie and the identity, and that's how I came to be the radio guy with the Sacramento Kings, and that was 35 years ago. Wow, yeah, and what do you remember of the city accepting the team at that time, and what was the atmosphere like around the city with the team coming in? People were starved for, for anything that, re that resembled pro sports, mm -hmm. and we didn't have anything. You know, you had an occasional NFL preseason game involving either the 49ers or the Raiders, at Hughes Stadium. You had an occasional uh, hockey preseason game after the arena had been built. But at that time, you know, there, were, there were no professional sports franchises outside the Bay Area in Northern California. Yeah. So people were just, they couldn't wait for the Sacramento Kings to become a reality and to become Sacramento's team. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like the Kings you know, brought a great record of success. The last couple of years that they played in Kansas City, most everybody had the feeling that this franchise was going to be moved. They were going to lose it. Attendance was very, very small. Um, they were, you know, middle of the pack in the NBA. But people were so excited here. And, and Renity, you probably know, they ended up selling out the first almost 500 consecutive home games wow. before they didn't have what was listed as a sellout. And that, I don't remember the number of years, but that was 9, 10, 11 years worth of of basketball and more. And so uh, the Kings on that trip that I mentioned when they were coming out to play uh, the, the uh, Warriors and the Lakers, they scheduled a stopover in Sacramento and scheduled a workout at American River College. And that particular gym at that time seated roughly 3,200, 3,400. And the practice was opened up to the public and I mean, people were literally hanging from the rafters. You could wow. not shoehorn another body into that gym. Yeah. And here come the Kings out of the locker room, and there's 3,400 fans just roaring their approval and showing their excitement about welcoming them to Sacramento. And these guys are looking around in a total state of disbelief because, you know, they're coming out and doing their stretching and their jogging and loosening up, getting ready for a, a routine practice in front of a jam-packed junior college gym. And that was the real introduction of Kings fans to the NBA. 
and it just continued to blossom and grow from that point. It was it was an amazing time, and and we've often talked over the years about the tremendous support of Sacramento Kings fans through thick and thin over the years. But that that was just the very first inkling of what we were, what kind of a ride we were going to be in for. Yeah, and I definitely want to get to that. I, I hear, I mean, everybody talks about how amazing the fan base is, understandably from being around it. Um, but going back to focusing on yourself a little bit, you hear all these stories of players' rookie years, but we don't get it from different point of views. What do you remember from maybe not necessarily only your first year, but your first couple years of transitioning to that life where, um, I mean, were you still like traveling with the team and everything back then, right? Yes. And it, it was all new to me. I, I mean, I had no no experience relating to the NBA whatsoever. I had no experience relating to professional sports on a regular basis other than the work that I was doing as a freelancer for NBC. They had a sports anthology show called Sports World. And as a result of that, I mentioned motorsports was a very big part of it. I got to do a lot of that. But I did a lot of other uh, you know, kind of offbeat sports, everything from sumo wrestling all the way up to including uh, seven or eight years of doing NFL football. So the NBA was new to me and and learning, you know, the, the do's and don'ts and learning about travel and learning about, you know, building trust and rapport with coaches and with players. Uh, all of that was was new to me and I took it very, very seriously. And I, I've always been a big believer in in preparation and paying your dues and, and, and being ready, you know, for anything that any particular game might throw at you. So it was it was an amazing experience, an amazing learning experience, and, and the curve was very, very high. And yet there was this tremendous enthusiasm for the Kings in Sacramento that just made the job so much fun. It, it really was it really was a marvelous, marvelous time. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, Bet Online. NASCAR is back, and Bet Online has hundreds of other games, events, and sports to get in on. You can still bet on simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC events 24 7. Or you can participate in a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge, a March Madness style NFL simulation tournament. You can enter for free. And coming up next Sunday, Bet Online has ex Chicago Bulls Horace Grant. Bill Cartwright and Craig Hodges joining them to discuss the Michael Jordan documentary on what they're calling After the Dance. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus and check out all the action. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. I'm curious what sort of prep goes into each of the games that you're doing. You know, Grant says that he spends time talking with the other play-by-play guys and picking their brains a little bit. Um, are you often speaking with the other announcers? Uh, what sort of prep goes into before each game, and how has that prep evolved throughout your 30-plus years of doing this? Um, I'm kind of a creature of habit, and, and I just kind of started doing things in my own fashion in terms of game day prep. I do not have a mind like Grant Napier, unfortunately. I wish I did that retains so much knowledge and so much information and stats and one thing or another. And I'm a guy who has to, I go through the media guide. First time you're seeing a team, you know, it takes, it's, it's a couple of hours to go through the guide and get, I build profiles of uh, each player. Um, 
pardon me, I, I got one of these just like happened to yeah. be laying on my, uh, and I don't know how well you can see this, but it just, wow. this is the kind of form uh, that I do for each and every game and for every team. And there's a ton of information that's on here. Uh, everything, I mean, just, I'll give you for, for example, uh, obviously the basics, the record, home record, road record, overtime record, capacity of the arena, uh, most recent game results, opponents scoring averages, your team's scoring averages, field goal percentages, free throw percentages, uh, rebounding averages, turnover numbers. And then I keep little side notes about the number of times, number of games that the team scores 100 or more points, the number of games that they've scored or shot better than 50%, number of games where they've shot less than 40% and what their record is when that happens, uh, games when they've had 12 or less turnovers, biggest comebacks. Uh, anything over double in double digits, I make a note of that. And then for every player, there's, you know, the height, the weight, year they've been in the league, year they were drafted, who drafted them, what the draft pick selection was, where they played their college ball, how they were acquired, if they were traded, signed as a free agent, whatever, career highs in various, you know, points, rebounding, assists, yeah. steals, blocks, all that kind of stuff. And then some fingertip information about each player relating to their college success or maybe personal notes about side businesses they have or one thing or another. So there's, there's a ton of stuff that I have kind of at my fingertips, but that's because I don't have one of those minds that retains all of that. So I rely heavily on that. But to get back to your initial question, first time you see a team each year, they've got new faces, you establish the roster, you go through the guide, you kind of condense down some of those notes that give you good knowledge about each of the individuals, the coaching staff, etc. Then you supplement that with current stats, updated. And um, there's there's a service that we, the Kings, employed for the first time this last year that helps you in providing some of the statistical background and information. And then, like Grant, you talk with the, the visiting or if you're on the road, the host broadcasters, and you know try to glean information from them. <clears throat> Excuse me about any trends or individuals who are coming off an injury or somebody who may be struggling a bit and why they're struggling and that type of information. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, great to have that prep in front of you. It definitely makes me feel more comfortable. I got my interview prep right here. So on a different <laughs> level, I understand where you're coming from there. Um, and you touched about like, you know, obviously being in different stadiums and things like that. And we'll start with, with Sacramento's. What do you feel like, what was your sort of transition like moving from Arco to the Golden One Center that's, I mean, still pretty new with that stadium? Well, it was such a vast improvement from so many different uh, standpoints. We were really excited about the, the prospects of getting a new arena. You have to keep in mind, the first arena the Kings played in was basically a warehouse that was made suitable for basketball that was slapped up by Greg Luganville's company in a matter of, I think it was like nine or 10 months. I mean, it was astounding that they wow. were able to do that, but it was a postage stamp, uh, 10,333. That was the number of fans. The locker rooms were about this big. And I mean, it was really a challenge. The trainer is taping ankles out in the hallway, one thing or another. So you go from that then to what we had for, what was it, 25, 28 years, uh, the old Arco. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, you know, it was tremendous because it was a much bigger venue, but you had to keep in mind, it was basically built on the cheap. And, it, you know, it didn't have the, the fine nuances 
I, I recall that the same year, the Bradley Center in Milwaukee opened, and it was built for about 90 some million dollars, which was double wow. the cost of the old Arco. And at the old Arco, you have the wooden floors and one thing or another. We love that because uh, coined the phrase Arco Thunder, people stomping their feet when things would get really rocking and rolling for the Kings and they're having a yeah. big night. And so Arco Thunder was a big deal and it, it was a ton of fun. Well, then you come to this situation, we go through all the angst and the drama about possibly losing the franchise. And then you come to a situation where you're going to have the Kings stay in Sacramento. You're going to build a new arena. We get the Golden One Center downtown and all the anticipation waiting as it's, you know, taking shape and then opening the doors. And there are things that I still, that I absolutely love about the arena. The openness, the fact that anywhere on the plaza level, you can look down on the playing floor. You can't say that about hardly any other arenas in the NBA. It's just a terrific feature. And the 4K resolution, the huge video board that runs basically rim to rim, it's 84 feet long. I mean, it's monstrous. There are a lot of big new monstrous scoreboards in the NBA, but none bigger or finer in my mind than, than that one at Golden One. So it was with a great deal of excitement that we went into that building. And it's with a continued great deal of excitement. But I'm, I'm very, very proud of that. I, I think it's a terrific home for the Sacramento Kings. And I think Kings fans are, are really fortunate to have a building of that statue that's going to be good for a couple of more decades in the core that's being revitalized in downtown Sacramento. Definitely a gorgeous building and great fan base to go with it with great people calling the games like yourself and Grant and everyone else involved. And uh, throughout, for that stadium and other ones that you're in, is there different strategies that you have to work with in regards to maybe the acoustic of where you're sitting or the angle of you have of the court? Is, it, is there different difficulties uh, depending on what stadium you're in throughout the year? Oh, Absolutely. You know, it's only been in the last 10 years, uh, always before, all the broadcasters were always on the floor of, of any of the arenas. So you're part of the action. You're, you're really, you can hear the byplay between the officials and the players and the coaches mm-hmm. and the players. You hear instructions during a timeout if there's a question because somebody's been hurt, you can call the athletic trainer over and get a quick thumbnail of, of what's going wrong or what they're concerned about or what they're dealing with. Uh, you can call the head official over and say, give me a quick clarification of what just happened on that sequence. Well, in the last 10 years, you know, the teams led by the NBA convincing teams, you know, these are very valuable areas here. Then you can sell these seats rather than give them to broadcasters or media types, and you can generate a lot lot more revenue. So that's what started it, and it started with radio, and it started roughly 10 or so years ago. And now we're down to the point, pardon me, where I think there are only four arenas left where radio is on the floor level. And in a couple of those instances, you're not in the front row, you're in a second or a third row. You're having to kind of peer around people's shoulders and other monitors and things like that. So that is a challenge, but I would, I so much more enjoy being on the floor. Now you mentioned the angles and the different views. You get a wide variety. There are a couple of places where you are such a long distance from the floor, way up center of the floor location, Washington, Dallas immediately come to mind. You're very high in Utah. Uh, but then I'm sure Grant probably told you about places where now television is being uh, transitioned to upper locations. Right. 
Philadelphia, you're on an end line at one quarter across from the visitor's bench. Just a really difficult angle. Boston Garden, TV still on the floor. Radio, however, is in a pie-shaped section in the end zone. You know, wow. you're at a relatively low level, but your sight line, when the Boston bench stands up directly in your line of vision, fully one-third of the floor is now lost to your vision. When you look across to the far corner and somebody shoots a three, the basket stanchion blocks it out. You can't tell for sure if he's shooting a two or a three, and sometimes you can't tell who's even taking the shot. So there are, the, the broadcast business has changed from that standpoint dramatically, and it's a much, much bigger challenge in my mind to call a game now than it was as recently as eight or ten years ago. But that's the nature of the beast. It's not going to change, and you just have to deal with it as best you can. But I know that from my standpoint, I think it impacts the way I call a game. I want to be precise. I want to be correct. And right. I know that two or three times in the course of any game, sometimes from those distances, particularly in the first quarter, I will misidentify a player. And, and it makes me angry at myself when that happens. But that's just, as I say, that's the, na the nature of the beast. And, and we certainly can't do anything about it. I think the league could be very helpful if they would. Uh, in the 15 minutes, what we call the formal warm-up activity, when players have their sweats on, if the league would just make them wear an identifying number that matched their jersey number on a sleeve, on a hip, whatever, right. when you're looking down at the floor and you're seeing guys for the first time and you say, well, this guy's got you know, lime green shoes, but I don't know who he is, and I won't know until he takes his sweats off and I see his number. This guy's got you know, dreadlocks that are bouncing out to here, but I don't know who he is until I get an identifying number. So it, it's a challenge that I think the league could help radio broadcasters particularly, uh, but thus far they haven't elected to do that for whatever reason. So, you know, I whine a little bit about that and I get on my soapbox. <laughs> it's just, it's not as easy as some might think because you're a long way from the floor in some, in some of these places. But that being said, I would much rather be a long way from the floor and have the opportunity than not have the opportunity. Guys, looking to last longer and go a few extra rounds? Get to BlueChew.com. BlueChew.com has the first ever chewable that brings your performance in the bedroom to another level. They've got the same active ingredients that are in Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. And since they're chewable, they work faster. You can take them anytime, day or night, and even on a full stomach. Plus, you don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in the pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost, and once approved, your order ships straight to your door in discreet packaging. Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free when you use promo code BLUEWIRE. All you gotta do is pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E chew.com promo code blue wire to get your first order free in regards to home versus away games what is the difference between how you're calling those again to kind of go back to grant since it's pretty comparable here is he says that at the home games he feels like when there's a big play he kind of takes a step back and lets the fans 
um, lets the audience be able to hear the fans and experience that moment. But obviously it's different because they, with Grant, there's a visual to go along with it and you're the one to paint that picture. So what is the difference like between working at home and away games? Well, I don't know that there's so much of a difference between home and away, but it's just, it's something that I think as a broadcaster, you have to have experience and you have to have a good feel for the moment. And when something dramatic happens, you want your listening audience to be aware of crowd reaction. And you hope that the balance technically that your engineer sets with, with various microphones picks up what's happening in terms of what, how the crowd is reacting. But you can't, you can't lay out of a situation too long, unlike television, because you say everything you do from a television standpoint is dictated by what you see on the screen. In radio, you have to paint that image for your audience. And, and that's always been a mystery to me because I don't know how I suspect that there are some people who listen very attentively and closely, and there are other people who are only listening to just check out a score and a trend of a ball game. and then. <clears throat> They gauge their their listening interest on on how the game is progressing. And if you know if they're a Kings fan and the Kings are are down by eighteen and you know they're relatively struggling all night long, uh, their interest probably wanes. But if they're down, and we had a wonderful experience this year in Minnesota where the Kings trailed by twenty seven at the end of the third or late in the third quarter, by twenty five going to the fourth, they're still down. 17 with what was it 249 to play yeah. they end up forcing overtime i mean that that doesn't happen but you know you're starting to roll and you see what's happening here and the momentum shift and is it possible can the kings really get back in this thing can they have a challenge for the t-wolves and as it turned out they did and the Aaron fox had an amazing play on in the final seconds with a m- deliberately missed free throw that resulted in the line drive coming right back to him off the front of the rim he takes the rim, lays it in. We go to overtime. Kings end up winning that ball game. Those things just don't happen. But yeah. when I think people listening to a radio broadcast sense something like that, then they become much more attuned to your particular call. So it's, you know, every game is different in that sense. But going back to the original point, I think as a broadcaster, you have to sense the moment and you let the crowd react and you, the roar, but you still have to you embellish and you paint that picture and you want them to be able to see in their mind what you're seeing and the fact that you're the conduit to them and, and, and you want to create that vision in their mind so that they can share, share that experience in, the, in that moment. Yeah, definitely. And with plenty of practice, you obviously have it down. And you mentioned, for example, the Minnesota game this year. What are other, and I'm sure there's plenty, so uh, give us a few here of memorable moments from out your time doing this? You know, it's funny because over the years, uh, Brendan, I've been asked that in different ways. And, and, and I've found that frequently sometimes the things that immediately pop into your mind aren't just the good nights right. of the Sacramento Kings. Sometimes it's the bad nights. And, you know, you go back to some of those early years when the Kings really struggled. And, you know, there were times when they lost by monstrous numbers, they were nearly record setting numbers. And, you know, there were a couple of instances where the Kings lost by 62, by 58, by 56. I mean, you remember those because it's just such a challenge to call a game like that. Uh, You just, you're shaking your head in amazement because shots aren't going in or 
turnovers or multiplying or whatever it is that leads to such a, a pathetic performance. But then, of course, you know, that's offset when you have game winners, when you have comebacks like that one in Minnesota this season, when you have the, the Bielitsa shot. You know, right. with one second to go, the Kings get the ball back in Houston where they've lost, I don't know, 12, 17 consecutive games. And, and they draw up a play and Belly's open out on the left wing and he knocks down a 33, 35-footer as time expires and you go nuts. And, and you just say, you know, those are extraordinary uh, games. And when that happens, how cool that is. Tyreek's half-court shot, what was it, 11 years ago, beating wow. Memphis at the old Arco uh, after O.J. Mayo had just scored to give the Grizzlies the lead. Kings no timeouts. Tyreek gets the ball a stride behind the midcourt line and lets it fly. And I think it was Dante Green who was up off the Kings bench as the ball was in the air with his arms extended because he yeah. knew that sucker was going in, and it did go in. And it, and it just, like, you you relish and you cherish those moments as a broadcaster. So, you know, when you look back over 35 years, there are a lot of those type of memories. Uh, the playoff series with the Lakers in 02 and Mike Bibby's buzzer beater in game, what was it, four, I guess, at the old Arco. Uh, and then the Kings still had seven or eight seconds where they had to make a defensive stop, and they did. And, and they were able to, to take the lead in, in that series. And it was just, you know, different things you flash back on. And somebody says something in jogs your memory, and you say, oh, yeah, I remember that night. I remember when so-and-so, you know, came up with this amazing shot that ended up either keeping the Kings in the game or they ended up winning it. A lot of fun. A lot of good memories. Yeah, definitely. You uh, re-talking about some of these makes me feel like I'm listening, like they just happened, I feel like. <laughs> um, and anybody in the chat that happens to be listening and wants to throw questions towards Gary, definitely feel free, and I'll try to get them in here as I'm starting to wrap up here myself. And you being around the team so often, you get a chance to build relationships with a lot of different guys in the front office and players. And can you just kind of speak to some of those that you've been able to have over the years and any that you may have um, with the current team going on? Well, I've always felt, and I continue to feel, that it's really important for any broadcaster to develop solid relationships. You have to establish a trust uh, the people you deal with, be it the coaches, be it the general manager and his staff, be it the players themselves, be it with the training staff, the medical side, the equipment guys, you know, they're all part of a, of a significant team and operation. You want their trust. You want them to understand that, you know, if you say something is off the record, it's off the record. And I, I've always been a big believer in that. And I think it's it's resulted in marvelous friendships that have spanned all of these years. And I'll give you a quick example. Uh, two nights ago, our phone rings here at home, and it's Joe and Dana Klein. And for longtime Kings fans, they would remember that name. Joe Klein was the first King drafted by the then Sacramento Kings in 1985. Wow. And he played a lot of years here. And he most recently, of course, was seen in the last dance because he was a member of the Chicago Bulls at the time that Jordan and company were making their bid for their sixth championship in seven or eight years. And Joe and Dana had just learned of our, our daughter passing a couple of months ago and, and had called to, to offer support and encouragement. And, and, but that speaks to just how you, know, you develop these types of friendships over the years. And with every era of Sacramento 
teams, it, it starts out, and to this day, you know, Eddie Johnson, Reggie Theus, and some of those guys from the first Kings team are still good, close, personal friends. And it goes all the way through. If you're talking about, you know, a Walt Williams or a Dwayne Coswell or whomever, you know, Wayman Tisdale, God rest his soul, uh, people that you just develop this great bond with. And it continues now. And, and it's, you know, I, I, I love this current assembly of Kings players. And, and much of it's been brought to the forefront in the last couple of months because of the loss of our daughter and so many in the Kings organization, so encouraging and so comforting. But when, you know, when a Bogdan Bogdanovich picks up the phone and calls you to express his, his, his sadness for what you're having to endure and go through. And when Harry Giles and, and Nemanja Bialica and Harrison Barnes and, and different ones, you know, send you texts of encouragement and support, these are special people and they have a special place in your heart. And I, to me, it's one of the, it's one of the great aspects of, of the job and what I get the opportunity to do. And I know Grant feels the same, Doug Christie feels the same, Jerry Reynolds, uh, Jim Cozumore. I mean, you know, Katie, all of us, you cherish these types of things. And it's just, uh, it's, it's amazing that the relationships that are forged and how they continue to go forward. And it's it's other broadcasters around the league, and it's just it's the ripple effect is is so amazing, and I just I feel so blessed, Brendan, that I you know I've been able to do this now for 35 years. That's a, a big chunk out of my life, and I'm I'm not young anymore, and I still have the opportunity <laughs> to do it, and I cherish it, and I love it. Yeah, definitely, and I I think that's most of what I got for you here, Gary. I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time out of your day. Um, is there anything else you feel a need to get out here as if you don't already have a platform of your own to do that on? <laughs> no, I just, uh, again, I just, I feel like I'm a blessed individual and I, I cherish these experiences and the people that I get to deal with and Luke Walton and his coaching staff. And, you know, we're all anxious to see whether or not we're going to get a chance to finish out this season and, Excuse me a second. I'm losing my voice. No worries. <laughs> don't want, don't like to do that. No but worries. <laughs> just part of it. But I, you know, again, uh, just so so thankful to have this opportunity. And the Kings have been so very very good to me over my years and to the various ownership groups. And I I just uh, appreciate them so much. Appreciate the opportunity. And fans have been amazing. And I hope they continue to be amazing. And I hope we continue to get a chance to call and do some real basketball here forget this pandemic right and, this <laughs> and maybe we can inch our way slowly back to what you know we consider the normal i don't know that it will ever you know it's going to be a new normal but uh right. let's hope we're creeping in that direction definitely hopefully we are and i'm sure everybody would love to get back to that when it's safe conditions and hear your voice again calling the games uh everybody obviously loves the work you do and I can't say again how much I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to kind of give a little bit of background onto yourself Gary and uh, I hope you have a, a good rest of your day and just again thank you so much thank you Brennan have enjoyed it going back down memory lane a couple of times here. there we go <laughs> all right well thanks again Gary you bet take care